It's great to see you all uh, looking out this afternoon and uh, seeing so many faces, so many of them new, so many of them familiar. I'm really glad you're here. Uh, let's pray together that as we turn our attention to God's word, he might address us and shape us. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have gathered us together this afternoon. We thank you for bringing us to this place. We thank you for your work in our life that has shaped each one of us and made us the people that you've made us today. And we pray that you might give us open ears to hear you speak to us in your word this afternoon. Where we need to be encouraged, please encourage us. Where we need to be taught, please teach us. Where we need to be rebuked, please rebuke us. And let us be faithful followers of your son. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. Friends, we live in a moment of wonderful gospel opportunity. In the last week, I've been hearing from men and women... Um, friends of ours in churches all over the city, that men and women are coming to Christ uh, in numbers that they haven't seen before. One friend from Western Australia was talking about how there seems to be a real spiritual hunger on the ground that goes unreported throughout our country. And in his church, they're seeing the fruit of it in people being converted. It is a moment of wonderful gospel opportunity. And I hope you know that. Despite what gets reported in the press, despite the struggles and strains that many of us feel, it is indeed a moment of wonderful gospel opportunity. Some of you may have heard of uh, what some are calling the Asbury Revival. In a Christian university in the US, Christians are gathering and some have been travelling quite some distance to get there to testify to the grace of God and to pray together. The university chapel has been packed to overflowing and it has been going on non-stop for 11 days now. Now, it's hard to know from this distance just what is going on, but even the secular, not particularly sympathetic press in the US are beginning to take notice. And it's now being replicated in a number of other places. Cedarville University in Ohio, Samford University in Alabama, in an age when, according to some, Christianity is on its last legs, there is a wonderful movement of God going on in Africa and in many parts of Asia. And clearly something is happening in the US too. And here in Australia, there are churches where the opportunities for evangelism and nurturing new believers are being taken up very seriously and they're clearly tapping into a real hunger and thirst for something more than what the world is offering. So it might seem strange, but I want you to undertake a thought experiment with me for the next 30 seconds or so. If you were the devil, <laughs> if you were the devil, implacably opposed uh, to God's work in the world, what would you do to neutralise a congregation of God's people? committed to mission? How would you stop a local church from being effective in prosecuting the gospel mission of Christ? And just to fine-tune the experiment for a moment, 
let's focus on a vibrant, gifted congregation of God's people, one where there are many evidences of God's kindness and blessing, where gifted men and women are exercising those gifts for Christ's glory, where people are coming to Christ and being built up in Christ, a church that seems to be working well, what would you do? What would be your number one strategy to neutralise them? Well, you might have thought it was persecution by the state. Close the churches down, imprison the leaders, outlaw Christian activities. That would certainly bring them down, wouldn't it? Yet time and again, persecution, no matter how severe it's been, has seen Christian churches grow rather than decline. The great Christian theologian from the second century, Tertullian, wrote in an apologetic work, we multiply when you reap us. The blood of Christians is the seed. The popular paraphrase is, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. We've seen that working its way out in China and parts of Africa. Your mind may have ran to uh, the catastrophic moral failure of some Christian leaders. That has certainly contributed to a fresh hostility towards Christian faith, particularly in the West. The child sex abuse scandals have fed a perception that Christians are hypocrites, even predatory. So too of other leadership scandals, marital infidelity, financial misappropriation, mistreatment of staff, and things like that. Of course, false teaching would have to be on your list, wouldn't it? Where teachers have dismissed parts of the Bible as not reliable or true, or added things to it, church doctrine, rules and regulations, one Australian bishop saying publicly that we need to move on from the Bible's teaching, Christian men and women are left confused. Their confidence in God's word is eroded. They don't know where to stand or when to stand and they follow their leaders into a lightly baptised form of the world's teaching. Or perhaps you would simply identify the disconnect between the stance of the churches on key moral issues and that of our society in general as itself a significant threat. As that gap widens, who is left listening to what the churches are saying, either individually or collectively? And I'd have to say there's something in each of those. Persecution can sift the church and that sifting, at least in the short term, can be painful and paralysing. The moral failure of prominent Christian people does have a catastrophic impact, both inside and outside the churches. False teaching, subtracting from or adding to the teaching of the Bible, eventually robs people of the gospel. And when a culture's keepers of information and influence constantly portray Christianity as old, stale, ignorant, out of touch or on the wrong side of history, that can be demoralising too. But there is something else that is particularly effective at neutralising the life, ministry and witness of a local church and this strategy has been on the devil's playlist for a very long time. And you see it here in the opening of Paul's letter to the Christians who gather as the church in Corinth. 
In AD 50, just 17 or so years after Jesus' death and resurrection, the Apostle Paul visited the city of Corinth, taught first in the synagogue and then outside of it, and as Acts 18 tells us, many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptised. But then after about a year and a half, teaching them, training them, mentoring them, he left. But the young church continued to grow. Other Christian leaders visited, Apollos, Peter, perhaps even Barnabas. And over time, questions arose about how to deal with the pastoral situations that had arisen. And so a letter was sent to Paul, asking him those questions. And in around AD 55, four years after he had left them, Paul wrote, but what we need to notice this afternoon is that Paul doesn't rush to answer their questions. Significant though those questions are about human sexuality and food offered to idols and the exercise of spiritual gifts, the resurrection and the collection for the saints, all important questions, but he doesn't go there first because there's something very serious that needs to be tackled first. Can you work out what it is? So will you look with me quite briefly at the first half of the first chapter of the first epistle of Paul to the Corinthians and it's worth keeping your eye out for the problem and the antidote as we consider first a called church, secondly a gifted church and thirdly a divided church. Firstly a called church. I wonder whether you noticed as it was read a moment ago in the first few verses of this chapter that Paul writes about both his own calling and the calling of those gathered as the church which is in Corinth. Paul's own calling as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God stands over this entire letter. This is not just a casual letter written by someone who had visited them some time ago, bringing them up to date on the latest news. It is a letter of Christ's apostle, who is just that by the will of God. God himself called and made Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ, a commissioned carrier of the gospel to the nations. Sometimes I hear, even amongst evangelical Christians, the comment, I really love Jesus, but you know, I've got issues with Paul. Paul's teaching is set over against as somewhat lesser than the teaching of the Lord Jesus. Yet the point that's made right here in 1 Corinthians 1 is that's a false distinction. Paul is a called apostle of Jesus Christ. What he says, he says as an authorised spokesman for Jesus Christ. Even later in the letter when he distinguishes the things about which he can quote the exact words of Jesus and those things where he can't, he is still speaking and writing as an apostle of Jesus Christ, called by the will of God. Perhaps some of the visitors who'd been to Corinth since Paul's stay with them had made this something he had to draw to their attention. For sure, he wasn't as impressive a speaker as Apollos. But he is an apostle of Jesus Christ, called by the will of God. Sure, he wasn't there walking with Jesus all through his earthly ministry as Peter or Cephas was, but he is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, commissioned by the risen Christ, given the gospel to proclaim by him, recognised as God's 
Christ's appointed apostle to the nations by the other apostles in Jerusalem. What he has to say to them, what he writes to them, carries that unique authority. He is worth listening to. But he doesn't just speak about his own calling, does he? He addresses himself and Sophonies to the church of God which is in Corinth, sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ in every place, their Lord and ours. You see, the men and women who gathered as the church of God in Corinth were to be holy. Paul stresses the point by saying they are both those sanctified in Christ Jesus and those called to be saints. It is as if Paul's planting a stake in the ground right at the very beginning of this letter. You, dear Corinthian Christians, by virtue of what what you actually are and your calling in Jesus Christ, you are meant to be holy, distinct in behaviour, and in focus from those around you. See, holiness is a big concern of Paul through this letter. That was stunning enough, given the sexual excess and immorality of all around them in Corinth. It was a wild, cosmopolitan city in the worst sense. Paul expected the Christians there to stand out as different because they have been sanctified, because they are the holy ones of God in that place. But what Paul wrote about the Corinthians was even more stunning because of the excess and immorality of some within their congregation. Right from the start, Paul wants them to know that this is their identity. You haven't been called to be a pale reflection of what's going on around you. You haven't been called to be indistinguishable from the community in which you're located. Your ambitions should be different. Your character should be different. The choices you make should be different. The way you treat each other should be different. The point is, in the way that Paul wants to make it here, if holiness is not a concern of yours, the holiness of the congregation and your own personal holiness, then you're denying who you are. This is the word of the apostle of Christ Jesus to the Corinthians and the word of God to us. You are sanctified by Christ Jesus and called to be saints. It is, of course, true that we still sin. Holiness is neither automatic nor easy. Holiness, you'll soon find, is costly too. If you watch some of the recent debates in the English General Synod over the blessing of same-sex unions, a number of incredibly impressive speeches were made by people who rejoiced in the choice they had made to live life as God's word directs, to live as those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints, even though it had been costly for them. It had not always been easy. And the tragedy as they saw it was that the synod led by the bishops seemed to be saying to them, you needn't have bothered. But it mattered to Paul, the apostle of Christ Jesus through the will of God. And so, friends, the question pressed on us is this. Is this how you think of yourself? And is this how you think of the congregation of which you are a part? Sanctified in Christ Jesus, 
called to be saints? In all the busyness of our programs and mission statements and structural arrangements, do we live differently because we recognise this truth about ourselves, individually and together? That's the first thing that Paul has to say to the Corinthians right at the very start of the letter. This is who you are. The church of God, which is in whatever place you're in, sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Now, having said that, Paul goes on to point out how greatly God has blessed this congregation in Corinth. They're not only a called church, they're a gifted church. As Paul's stress in the first paragraph is clear from the use of the words sanctified and saints alongside each other, in this second paragraph, Paul again does something similar when he speaks of the grace of God and not lacking any gift or grace. His emphasis is on how much the Corinthians have been given. And it all comes from the grace of God. They are enriched. They're not lacking in any gift. And just as God called them into the fellowship of his son, so he will sustain them so that they will be guiltless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. What God has done for them and among them is a cause of great thanksgiving and gratitude. This is a congregation resourced by God to be a testimony to him. They've been particularly enriched in speech and knowledge. And this basic truth, I hope you notice, will make the third truth he says about them when we come to it in a minute all the more shocking and tragic. But the point is that Paul was writing to a congregation that was very impressive in many ways. And not the way the world thinks about greatness and impressiveness, that's true. They didn't have many high-born people amongst them or economically powerful people. The leading intellectuals of the day had not joined them, but they did have the great preachers, the sort any church or Christian conference would want to have on their platform. They did have considerable knowledge. After all, they'd had 18 months of being personally tutored by the Apostle Paul himself. They might not have had a terribly big building, The days of elaborate church buildings and auditoria are still in the future. Nevertheless, this congregation was in a position to make a spectacular contribution to the mission of the gospel. And everything they had was not earned, not achieved. It came from the grace of God. They were a gifted church. Their question to Paul about spiritual gifts, how spiritual gifts should be understood and exercised was itself another evidence of this. The gifts were in operation in Corinth. And it is so very easy in situations like that to start to believe your own press, isn't it? To consider this is what makes you special. That to some degree or other you deserve this. But friends, when you think like that, when you start acting as if your church is the template for all God-honouring and effective ministry in the world, that everyone should do church the way you do church. And I know people who would never say that, but certainly act like it. When you think and act like that, what is lost so very quickly is the sense that all you have is a gift. It's God's grace that is the real reason for whatever growth you've had, the variety of things you've been able to do the notice you've received from others. 
And when your eyes, or mine, are turned from the grace of God to our own sense of achievement or the achievement of our group, when thanksgiving is replaced by pride, we are in real danger. Gifts are gifts. They are given, not earned. They are received, not achieved. They are not something that sets you above or apart from others. They are gifts given by God, out of his grace. When you think about your church, or even yourself, is that what you remember? It's all a gift. I've not done anything. The church in Corinth was a called church, sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, called into the fellowship of his son. It was also a gifted church. God had supplied them with exactly what they needed to be God's people in that place and at that time. But tragically, it was also a divided church. You see, Paul does not follow his statement of how thankful he is that God has gifted them so well with, all right, then let's get down to business about the things you wrote to me. He'll turn his letter to, he'll turn his attention to their letter soon enough. But there's something he needs to address first. There is an appeal he needs to make first. And you see it there in verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, through the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all say the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united in the same mind and in the same opinion. And at last we see how the devil was neutralising them. And as I said... It is with a strategy that has been on his playlist for a very long time. For despite being called to be saints, despite being extraordinarily gifted as a church, they were divided among themselves. They were quarrelling. They were defining themselves over against each other. It got so bad that one of their own, Chloe, had to write to Paul to tell him about it. And as so often happens, they had divided themselves into parties. The group that identified with Paul, the church planter, I'm for Paul. The group committed to effective ministry, identifying themselves with the best teacher and speaker, I'm for Apollos. The group that was most authentic, identifying themselves with our roots, with the apostle who walked alongside Jesus right through his earthly ministry, I'm for Cephas. And then those who are above it all, playing the trump card, I'm for Christ. And two things horrify Paul about this. The fact that they were divided and the fact that one group was using his name to separate themselves from others. Friends, I've watched brilliant ministries be shipwrecked by this kind of party spirit and division. Those involved becoming preoccupied with justifying themselves and pointing out where others are wrong or deficient in some way or other. And they do not even notice that their eyes have shifted from Jesus to themselves. Leadership is undermined as others gather their own supporters and are always talking about the failures of the person put in leadership among them. The assistant minister who gathers his own support group and drops the occasional critical comment about the senior pastor. Years ago, I watched it play out in a theological college 
where the staff and student body were divided, each advocating their own preferred leader, each dismissing the others as confused, misguided or worse, it was terrible. And that college still bears the scars. You might remember that Jesus himself said something about this kind of division when the Pharisees tried to explain Jesus' miracles by accusing him of being in league with the devil, he said, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. No matter how gifted, no matter how well-resourced, respected or looked up to for leadership, internal division will neutralise you. And that's the devil's strategy. Get them fighting amongst themselves. Unpick their unity in the gospel. Stop them agreeing and foster multiple opinions among them. It's what he did in the Garden of Eden, immediately dividing the man and the woman. They hid from each other, remember. And then the man says, the woman that you gave me, she made me do it. As I said, the devil's been about this one for a very long time. If they're setting themselves against each other, concentrating on what differentiates each from each other, from the other, identifying themselves by their differences, then the focus will be off the grace of God, the gifts of God has the gifts that God has given and the purpose that He gave those gifts, and it will be off the urgent need of our world. And that's why Paul gave this such priority. That's why it's the first thing he must say before he gets on to what they wrote to him about. If they didn't stop doing this, then they would inevitably unravel. The gathering will be scattered and the mission will falter. That's why Paul is determined that no one should use him to divide themselves from others. He didn't die for them. They weren't baptised in his name. It's not about Paul, it's about Jesus. It's no consequence who he baptised. He's not even kept a record of it, can't even remember. That's how unimportant it is. Not the baptism, but the fact that he was the one who did the baptism. And it is of no consequence how erudite or eloquent he is as he preaches the gospel indeed. If he relied on that sort of thing, he would empty the cross of Christ of its power. There are some great things in this first letter of Paul to the Corinthians, and we're going to find out about them over this term. But here, right at the start, Paul makes an urgent appeal that we need to take seriously too. All of you, say the same thing. Don't let divisions arise among you. Be united in the same mind and in the same opinion, Paul wrote. Because while those he was writing to were called a church sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. And while they were a gifted church, not lacking any gift, enriched in Christ in all speech and knowledge, they were also divided. And that division, that party spirit, that setting of themselves over against themselves will break them apart and keep them from the mission. And that is what the devil was counting on. So can I say to you, my brothers and sisters, wherever you are involved in ministry, whether it's a church or university campus or in the ministry here in this college with each other, don't fall into this trap, will you? 
don't let the devil's strategy win, will you? There is one thing we need to share with one another, that we are all recipients of enormous grace, that we have never deserved and could never deserve. Everything we have is from our God through Jesus Christ. And so I cannot present myself as apart from or better than you. And you can't present yourself apart from and better than me. For we are meant to be together, the church of God called in this place, sanctified by Christ Jesus, called to be his saints, his holy ones. Will you take that admonition at the beginning of this epistle seriously as we begin this life together this year in this place? Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, your word challenges us and our inherent selfishness. But you give us grace. And the same Jesus who died for us calls us to follow him and promises that he is able to keep us to the last day. And so we pray, Father, as we hear this word, would you help us to heed it? Help us to live it out and rejoice in it. For this word is from you and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.